Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Throughout the long history of golf, the PGA Tour, and really sports in general, there are so many names time has forgotten. Stars whose names just don't resonate with the fans of today. And sometimes their names don't even ring a bell with the stars who play the game now. Lloyd Mangrum is one such example. And on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back and discuss the career of one of golf's forgotten heroes, Lloyd Mangrum. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 117, Lloyd Mangrum. Known as the icicle to many, Mangrum is truly one of golf's forgotten heroes, a star who won 36 times and was the 1946 U.S. Open champion. He played on the tour at the same time that such legends as Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Byron Nelson walked the fairways as well. Not very boisterous, Mangrum just went about his business. The name or magnitude of the tournament never mattered to Mangrum. If it paid well, that's all he cared about. After all, Playing golf was a business for Mangrum. It was the way he made a living. But reaching the heights he did didn't come easy. In fact, Lloyd never finished high school, went to work as a caddy, and then joined the tour. After struggling at first, Mangrum, well, he started to finally put it all together, and then World War II. Like so many of his fellow pros, Mangrum fought for his country. After the war and after recovering from an injury, Lloyd came back and that's when his career really took off. And joining me today on Sports Forgotten Heroes is noted golf writer and author Peter May, who recently released a terrific book called The Open Question. Published by Roman and Littlefield, The Open Question takes a look back at the controversy surrounding the 1942 Hail America Open. And this is a tournament that I'm going to cover with Peter in a later episode. Put on by the USGA, this tournament featured terrific displays of golf by a few of the aforementioned golfers, including Mangrum. And Peter is here to talk about the great career Mangrum put together on today's episode. 
But before we get to Lloyd and his career, I need to mention a few things. Please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, and please visit my website, sportsfh.com. This is a terrific way to learn more about the forgotten stars I talk about and more. Also, if you have an idea for a podcast or just want to send me a note, please do so at sportsfh.info at gmail.com. That's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. And if you can, especially if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. And as always, thanks for your support. Okay, here we go. Let's get into today's show about Lloyd Bangram with my guest, Peter May. And joining me now, Peter May. Peter, thanks for joining Sports Forgotten Heroes. Glad you're here. Well, I'm glad to be here as well, Warren. Thank you for having me. So, Peter, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Let our listeners uh, know a little bit about yourself, your interests in golf, what you do, and how you came about to be such an expert. <laughs> well, I, I wish I was, but um, <clears throat> my life has been spent basically my adult life was spent as a sports writer uh, at the Hartford Current in Connecticut at the Boston Globe and then uh, as a freelancer for the New York Times Mm -hmm. uh, basically and I did ESPN for a little while too Um, but it was mostly stuff I did it wasn't a lot of golf in there I did some golf for the New York Times but not a lot and I've, I've always enjoyed golf history. I've always thought it was fascinating. And I stumbled on this particular topic, uh, as, as I explained in the book, just, I was reading a tweet from the late great Dan Jenkins. And, um, he talked about this tournament that Hogan, uh, shot a 62 in, in 1942. And that's the real record for, you know, low score in a major. And I'm thinking, well, what is he talking about? Mm. I have no idea. What this is. And one thing led to another. And I, I eventually started corresponding with Dan before he died. And uh, he's, you know, he's a, he's one of the fervent believers that the hail America should count as a fifth open for Hogan. And then I started researching it and bingo. I, it, 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 I just really enjoyed going back and, and looking in that period of time and the war and all that stuff. And, uh, it was just a fun, fun project to do. I really enjoyed doing it. Well, your book, The Open Question, Ben Hogan and Golf's Most Enduring Controversy, is certainly a terrific book. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And one of the guys you discuss in there is Lloyd Mangrum. And we're going to do another podcast later on about the Hell America, but today we're going to concentrate on Lloyd And I think the most appropriate question to ask to start the conversation on Lloyd is, why was he called the Icicle? I'm sorry, I missed that. Why was he what? Called the Icicle. Oh, yeah, Mr. Icicle. Um, Because he had a very, uh, shall we say, chilly demeanor. Um, And if I could just back up a little bit about that in terms of Mangrum, when I set out to write this book, I... I zeroed in on four people. Obviously, Hogan had to be one of them. Mm-hmm. 
but I also wanted to work into the story what these golfers did during World War II and uh, how that affected them mm-hmm. uh, and how the war affected the tour and all that stuff. And I had read, probably as you have too, a number of articles about Mangrum that said he did this and he did that and he was you know, wounded at the Battle of the Bulge and all yeah. this stuff. And, and I said, I gotta, you know, this. I gotta get this guy in, and, and he, you know, in addition to being like a, a distinguished service vet, veteran, he was, you know, an incredible golfer as well. Uh, so that's how I, that's how I found out about Lloyd Mangrum. I really didn't know a lot about him uh, when I started out on this project. I knew I knew the name, but not much else. Mm-hmm. And he's a fascinating, fascinating individual in a lot of ways, but he was very gruff, getting back to your original question, uh, and, you know, didn't, you know, suffer fools lightly, really wasn't out to make friends. He just kind of like, you know, played his round of golf and he liked to play cards afterwards. And, um, and it was a different kind of tour back then, obviously, you know, you didn't have the TV, you didn't have Mm -hmm. the media, you know, presence that you have now. So, I mean, for instance, he was able to, in his very first competitive round at Augusta National in 1940, he shot a 64, yeah, uh, which stood as the best round at Augusta for, I don't know, 30 years or something. And, uh, but, you know, he didn't go into the media room afterward, talk about the round and tell you what, what shot he hit on 13 and what club he used on 15 and all that stuff. So we don't have a whole lot of information about what he did on that round, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. um, he, he, I'm not sure, I'm not sure he would have done it anyway, even if he, even if he, uh, could have, he, he just wasn't an overtly, you know, friendly guy. Uh, he wasn't a bad guy, but he just, he wasn't a, he wasn't, you know, an extrovert, I guess is the best way to phrase it. He, he kind of stuck, he had, he had his card games, he had his wife and he had his golf. And that was, those were the three things that, you know, really, he really appealed, that really appealed to him, I guess. Well, how would you compare his personality, let's say, he being the icicle, Hogan the hawk, and many people would think that in a way you might have just described Hogan when he walked a golf course, his concentration level was off the charts, and, you know, he just... It was about the game, but similar with Mangrum, but Mangrum also took that away from the golf course. Would that be correct? Um, I, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, you know, the thing that, that the thing I think that differentiates him from Hogan is that I think once the round was over for Hogan, he was more outgoing perhaps than Mangrum was. There, there's no question you're absolutely right on the golf course. Hogan was, you know, dialed in. And there are a number of stories about guys who played with him who, who were thinking, you know, would he please hurry up? Would he please do this? Would he please do that? But no one, no one had the, you know, audacity to say anything to him about it. So he would, he would do what he wanted. And, and, um, and I don't think Mangrum was like that. It, you know, he was dialed in as well, but, uh, I mean, I think Hogan had that, you know, that aura that he just, you know, he just didn't bother him. And Mangrum wasn't quite like that, but Mangrum was just, his personality 
I guess prickly is a good way to describe mm-hmm. it. He was mm-hmm. he was that way on the course, and he was that way off the course. And I th- I think Hogan was more of a you know I think Hogan understood things when he got through. And I think there's a part in the book where I write where there's a picture of them uh, after some tournament, and Mangrum won it, and Hogan didn't, and Hogan's smiling, and Mangrum isn't, and, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking you know. He's looking like his dog just died, and I, I think that's—I think that's sort of the way I came to look at him. Um, and I think he—he he understood that to a certain degree. The more he got separated from the game after he retired, and uh, there—you know—he finally went out and sought out Jim Murray, the the great columnist right, for the right. LA Times. And Jim Murray wrote the column as "Sports Forgotten Hero" or "Golf's Forgotten Hero," which fits right into what you're. Your right, right. Podcast is about, and he is a forgotten hero. Not, I mean, he's one of the great, great players of that era that very, very few people know about or can speak with any kind of knowledge about, and that included me until I started, you know, researching this book. And he's he's a just a fascinating guy, and I, I really, he really deserves a biography. Somebody should write a biography about him because he's he's really, really interesting. He did a lot of great things. Yeah, including winning golf tournaments. He won 36 yes. of them, and and not too many people know about Lloyd Mangrum. How good a golfer was he? I mean, he was he was a terrific golfer, and in that span, post-World War II, for like 10 years, he was every bit as good as any of those guys that play in terms of number of wins, in terms of money won. He, he was as good as any of them. Uh, he didn't win majors. That's the one thing he didn't. He won the 46 mm-hmm. Open, which was the first Open after World War II. And then he he didn't win another one. Um, but he was a Varden. He won the Varden Trophy for two years. Yep. He was a Ryder Cupper yep. with um, impeccable uh, record, especially he was a team captain. So he was a, he was a terrific off and he was justifiably placed in the Hall of Fame. Uh, maybe a little later than he should have. Mm-hmm. He's He's in the Hall of Fame and he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, but there's there's a, a section uh, that I came across uh, when Byron Nelson was at the Masters. I think it was 1996. And, you know, Byron's not playing or anything. He's just there. And he went around and asked the, the golfers at the time if they'd ever heard of Lord Mangrum. And none of them had heard of him. Yeah, that's crazy. And, uh, you know, that's to me, that's surprising uh but you know he wasn't a self-promoter he didn't seek out you know warren's podcast he didn't seek out me you know to write (laughs) about him you know he he just he his idea was he plays golf he makes money and you know that's how it is and um i think at the end of his life he sort of recognized that maybe he he should be you know recognized for that but you know I think still to this day, people don't know a lot about him. Well, that all fits into his his nickname, the Icicle. And as you just said, he played golf for the money, and he was pretty upfront about that. At least he you wrote so in your book. Um, he was in it for the money. It was a way to make a living. In fact, I guess be it the Masters, the U.S. Open, whatever the tournament was called, he didn't care. He could have called it. The 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 hot dog championship. If it paid well, that's where he'd go. And he also said that's where the rest of the tour players would go as well. 
Talk about his motivation. Right. That you know, that's a great question. I was I was going to get to that, but you beat me to it. Um, he was very very, and I think the difference is is that they all. He's right. They all did play for the money back then, even though there wasn't much money to play for. Uh, but uh, he was the one who was not afraid to say it. You know, he didn't he didn't say, well, I don't care. The U.S. Open's important to me because it's the USGA and it's an important win. No, you know, it was another golf tournament. And it, and if it paid well, he was happy to win. Mm -hmm. it. Uh, and one of the books that I use as research for the open question was a, a, a book uh, that talked about uh, every player's uh, most uh I don't know, important day in golf or the day. And for Mangrum, it was the day that he won uh, George May's tournament at, at the Tamla Shanter uh, mm. because due to a number of things that happened afterwards, he ended up winning $22,000 for the week. And that's like a year's pay for those guys. Yeah. Uh, the top guys. And to him, that was his most important day in golf because he won the most money and that's what he was out there to do. He was not apologetic about it. He was upfront about it. And I think he's right. I think the other guys probably felt the same way. Um, some of them like Jimmy Demerit, like to have a little fun. And, uh, you know, if it meant you finish, you know, 10th instead of third, so be it. But, uh, his motivation going out there was to make money. And, it, it, the same was for Hogan. I don't think there's any difference there. Hogan just didn't wasn't so vocal about it. And the thing that you have to remember about all of these guys, all of these guys, I mean, Hogan, Demerit, Mangrum, a lot, a lot of they came from like pretty grinding poverty. Yeah. Growing up. And so that was important to them to be able to make money to provide to, you know, have a subsistence, you know, not be, you know living under a bridge somewhere and so i think that drove him as well i mean he 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 didn't have a great upbringing and he needed to get out there and make some money and um and so that's that's i think what motivated him as much as anything yeah so let's go back to the beginning let's go back to his upbringing how did that affect his demeanor how did it affect his goals and his attitude towards the game of golf and i guess life in general yeah, I mean, it was pretty tough. He was born in Trenton, Texas, in 1914, and they, you know, it was a, I don't know, five or six kids, and there was a, it was a large family. I didn't really go into his, you know, background that much because I really wanted to focus on what he did, you know, during the war and stuff. But it was, um, you know, he and his brother left the house. Uh, early in, in, teen, in their teen years and moved to California. I mean, Mangrum never graduated from high school. Hogan never graduated from high school. Demerit never graduated from high school. Uh, they just, would, you know, they learned to play by caddying. Uh, that's the way you did it back then. Mangrum learned to play. He had an older brother named Ray, who was an accomplished player in his own right, and uh, got him, you know, good caddying jobs at certain tournaments. And so he, that's how he sort of learned how to model himself, model his game after the players he caddied for. If he liked to swing, he would model his swing after this player, his putting and so forth and so on. Um, but it wasn't easy for any of them. I mean, for Hogan, uh, any of those guys, it's a bunny just, there wasn't a lot of money mm -hmm. and it was, 
it was a really kind of a, a tough drive to get to where you wanted to get to back then. And the one advantage that Lloyd Magram had that the other guys didn't have is that he got married at a very young age, I believe it was 23, to a woman who was probably 10 years older than him and, and had children who, <laughs> who weren't that much younger than Lloyd, but she had a steady business as a hairdresser in LA. And he was able, that removed one of the real, you know, sticking points in any kind of development because he didn't have to worry about a house. He didn't have to worry about, you know, where a source of income because the the money from his wife's business came in. So that really helped him. Uh, And, you know, Hogan didn't have that. Um, He had to subsist on his own and make it or break it. Mangram had that nice little backup there. And the wife, Alita, turned out to be one of the real forces uh, in his life and followed him around on the tour and was was one of the great, um, you know, pro-wives of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of like a Barbara Nicholas or a Winnie Palmer was later on. Well, like you said, he didn't finish high school, worked as a caddy, among other jobs. Right. He was, a, you know, he did the, you know, he drove cabs and he, you know, he did a lot of odd jobs mm-hmm. along the way to try to, you know, get to the point. And he was a miserable failure when he started out playing as Hogan was. Um, and then he, you know, he got some security with the marriage and he was able to uh, improve his game and get to the point where he could play uh, because he was, I think well, he was always good enough. He just didn't. Yeah, you know, what have made him the first, the first when he first started to try and make it on tour? What made him think that he had the type of game that could succeed as a PGA Tour player? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because I think they all had it back then, but it needed. They needed the. Um, they needed the imprimatur of the, you know, of the paycheck, I guess is the way to phrase it. They just, he knew he was good enough. I mean, he, his brother helped him. His brother got him into tournaments. Uh, he finally won a tournament in, in Pennsylvania. Um, I want to say like 1937, 38, somewhere in there, state, the state, a state tournament in Pennsylvania. Uh, his brother at the time was a pro at, in a, at a club outside Pittsburgh, and got him in, even though I don't think he was supposed to be playing in it, but he did. Um, and I think he, I think he always knew he was good enough. He just needed to have the affirmation and the opportunity, and that was that was true of so many of them back then. And I mean, we all know the story of Hogan, who was like one tournament away from driving back to Fort Worth. Yeah doing whatever it was he would end up doing. We don't know because he made enough money to go on to the next week. Mm. And who knows what would have happened if he hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, but Mangrum was able to, you know, play well enough uh, to get to the point where he could compete on the tour. And, and back then that there were, you know, it's not like the tour is today where, you know, you're going to get a Luke list winning one week and a, you know, Tom Hoagie winning one week and a, Joaquin Neiman winning one week. The the good players, generally, you know, you could pick five guys and they would pretty much win every tournament throughout the year. And um, somebody might sneak in somewhere, but it was either Hogan or Nelson or Snead or Mangrum, Demerit. Those you pick those five guys and you go with them for a whole year, and they probably would win, you know, 
80 percent of the tournaments mm -hmm. so it wasn't like there was a diverse field back then either it was he you know if you were good enough to get in there and he was he could make a name for himself uh because there just weren't that many really good golfers back then uh who were playing on the tour and and, and the tour was so different back then oh, too yeah. i mean you know it's nothing like it is today in fact if you didn't finish in the top 10 in many tournaments. You didn't win any money. And many right. of the golfers who played professionally had to have club jobs as well. So tell us a little bit about how the tour operated back then and how, I guess, cutthroat it really was. Well, it, it, it was cutthroat. And um, I don't think it was cutthroat among the players, but the way you described it is is accurate. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money. Most of the pros um, had to do, had made their money from club jobs, the affiliation with the club, which is why you see Ben Hogan from Hershey, Pennsylvania, for instance. Um, the Hershey Club you know, had Hogan as its pro. I mean, I don't think Ben Hogan stuck around giving lessons to the members there. <laughs> right? I couldn't imagine. I don't think so. And they made money from exhibitions and stuff like that. That was that was their bread and butter. The, the in 1941, Craig Wood won the U.S. Open at Colonial in Fort Worth. And the next day he flew to Oklahoma City to do a, um, you know, a, a exhibition. A, yeah, a clinic or an exhibition. And that's where that's where those guys made a, made a lot of their money. Uh I mean, first prize was like fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand bucks, which was you know a fair amount back then, but you know nothing like today. And like you said, uh, if you finished outside the, like the top twenty, you probably didn't get anything. I mean, the Masters didn't pay uh, players outside the top fifteen until I think after World War II. So uh, there wasn't you 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 had to be good <laughs> to make money, and no the money doubt. that you made wasn't that great. Uh, which harkens back to what we were talking about with Mangrum winning that big tournament in Chicago, where we made twenty-two thousand uh, dollars. That, you know, that was just you know a, a motherload back then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned his brother Ray earlier, and and you know, like we say, um, like Jim Murray, the great writer, said, "I contend that Lloyd Mangrum is a forgotten hero of the sport." And while I don't contend that Ray had the same type of game that Loy had. He still was a really good golfer. In fact, he had five PGA Tour wins to his credit. Um, and he had a top 10 finish in the Masters and the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. What kind of game, if you can, if you know, did Ray have and how did that rub off on Lloyd? Well, I think it helped Lloyd. Lloyd a lot to have an older brother who was as good as he was and who was connected as he was. I mean, I think that's just as important as the ability was the fact that Ray knew people from being out on the tour and playing on the tour and playing amongst professionals. And he was able to, you know, steer Lloyd in this direction or that direction. And I think that was huge for Mangrum. Uh, Ray had a, uh, as from what I can tell, he had, like you said, he had a pretty good game. He, he was still winning tournaments in, you know, 42, 43 in there. But, 
uh, I think he was more uh, inclined to the party life than his brother was. I think that's. <laughs> I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you, you know, take it to your own imagination. Um, but uh, I don't think I think Lloyd got the serious gene in the family. Maybe um, Ray was a good player. There's no question about it. And I think it was hugely impactful for Lloyd to have that older brother uh, who gave him his first golf club when he was a kid, and uh, you know, kind of moved him along and. Uh, that was something that he had that, you know, a lot of the other guys didn't have. Mm -hmm. Now back to Lloyd and you touched on this just, just before um, he was a caddy, tried his hand at playing on tour, didn't go too well. So if you can talk about his first experience on tour and then how returning to being a caddy helped him prepare for his second go at it as a tour professional how did his game improve what did he learn was it mental was it mechanics what what did you find from your research and is there anything you can share with us um yeah he went you know he he was uh like like a lot of the pros back then he you know his first go round was not a real big success and um so he had to work at it and uh, it evolved of some caddying because that's, you know, that's, he stayed close to the game and that's how he got, you know, back into the game, I guess, or back into the mindset of how you have to succeed as a professional. Um, and then in the late thirties and in 1940, he, he was back on the tour. Now he's 1940. He would be, you know, 25, 26 years old. Right. He banged and, around a little in 38 and 39. He won a little yes. here and there. Nothing right. huge to speak of. And then he gets the big break in 1940 and was invited to the Masters. And that round was right. absolutely extraordinary. So sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, that's okay. Um, he did. And he got invited to the Masters because he would he had been one of the top players on the tour up until that point. I mean, the Masters, trying to figure out who got invited to the Masters and for what reason, you know, up through like, I don't know, 20 years ago is like crazy. I mean, they, they, they kept changing things. They kept doing everything was different. And he he got in because he had he was one of the top players on the tour for the first, you know, three months of 1940. And then he shows up in Augusta. And like I said earlier, he shoots in his first competitive round, a 64. Um, and uh, he didn't win the tournament. I think he finished second that year. Demerit won it. That was Demerit's first of three. Uh, but I remember Demerit's looking at the number on the scorecard thinking, you know, what are we doing out here? I mean, <laughs> this guy coming out to 64. Right. And, um, and, uh, it, and it, it's it stayed the course record for I don't know, 30 years or so. Uh, and so nobody was, remembers him. That's the crazy no, thing. This guy goes out no. and shoots a 64 at Augusta. And like you said, Byron Nelson's talking to uh, uh, tour pros, you know, in the in the mid to late 90s. Lloyd who? Right. Right. I mean, that's why this he's a perfect topic for your podcast, because people just do not remember this guy uh and he is a forgotten uh hero of the sport because he was a great player and i mean not only did he shoot a 64 warren he shot a 64 in his first round there 
I mean, what what do we know about Augusta after watching it all yeah. these years? You <laughs> have to know the course. You exactly. Know, right. You got to know where the green does this and does that. The course knowledge at Augusta is like, you know, so important. And he goes out in his first round there and shoots 64. And um, it, I don't, you know, I don't know how many, there's probably been how many more rounds equal or better to that. I don't think there've been too many. There. Not too Maybe many. Three or four. Yeah. Um, so that's just, that's amazing that he did that. And uh, he, you know, he, he, he could play and he, he did like, it's too bad. He didn't win. He, he loved the masters. He kept playing at the masters, you know, well after he, had any reasonable chance of contending. He played into the sixties there. Uh, but, uh, that was, a that was a, he, that was a shot heard around the world really for Lloyd Manger. That was every, his, him telling everybody I'm here and you're going to have to deal with me, uh, for the foreseeable future. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, sure. Because in 1940, he won something called the Thomasville open in Georgia in 1941. Right. He wins, the Atlantic City Open, and in 42, he really established himself with three wins. So if you can, again, I know there's not a whole lot out there. He didn't speak a whole lot about his game, but from what you were able to to find, what can you tell us about his game? How is it developing at this point of his career? And what were his strengths, if you do know? Was he great off the tee? Was it the short game? What what were his strengths? Tell us about his game. Um, from what I was able to determine, uh, his game was really, uh, he was a great putter. Um, and he wasn't very long. He, he kept his feet really close together in his stance. Um, so he didn't get a lot of distance on his shots. He was pretty accurate. I don't think he got in a lot of trouble off the tee but he wasn't very long so he did depend on um a good game around the green and he was a terrific putter i mean that's one thing he could do uh he had kind of this way he kind of you know stabbed at the ball as they did back then uh and he he was a great putter i think that's where he really excelled and and um you know made up for the fact that he wasn't really a long hitter you know you touched upon this also, in the beginning, and how apropos um, in a not in a very non-celebratory way, I record out my my episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes pretty far in advance. And as we sit here and talk about this today, um, the Ukrainian crisis is as about as awful as can be. And right. going back to, Mangrum, like many, in 1944, he had to turn his attention towards World War II, and he ended up serving for a few years. There's a lot of speculation about his time in the Army. No one doubts he served. No one doubts he was injured. But where he served and how he got injured, there's a lot of unknowns. Tell us what you can about his time in the army. Well, that was, the, I have to say, that was the most um, revelatory thing that came upon in doing my research for this book. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons I chose him as somebody I would focus on 
was because of the stories that I read about his war service. And um, the more I delved into it, the more I came away thinking, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of stories here that don't seem to add up. And mm. the the people that really broke it open for me, as far as I can tell, were the uh, historians who, uh, for the 90th Infantry Division, which is the which is the division he served in in France. And when I first talked to their historian, uh, I said, you know, I want to do this. You know, what do you have on Lloyd Mangrum? I know I won two Purple Hearts and four Silver Stars, and he was injured at the Battle of the Bulge, and blah blah blah. And the guy got back to me, and he said, "Well, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I, I don't have any record of that, but I'll, I'll be happy to check for you." And we went back and forth and back and forth, and the what I what was able to be retrieved because a lot of the records were lost in a fire uh, in 1973. But what I was able to determine was that the stories about him being injured at the Battle of the Bulge I don't believe were true because I don't believe he was there. He was recuperating at a hospital in England uh, after being injured in a jeep accident in August. Uh, he was not at D-Day, uh, and that makes sense because he was mm. still a he was still in the United States in late March of 1944. So the idea that he would be pressed into service, you know, on June 6th would seems, you know, seems to be, that would seem to be rushing it. And he was actually placed in what was called a replacement battalion in England. So he was in the first wave that came over, you know, or one of the waves that came over after uh, Normandy after the after the Normandy landing, he landed in Cher Cherbourg at the end of July, from the records that I was able to determine. So he wasn't at D-Day, he wasn't at the Battle of the Bulge. He did get wounded, as far as I could tell. There's no written record of him getting a Purple Heart, although he seemed says he to got two <laughs> qualified. <laughs> he got wounded, so he should get one, right? Okay. Uh, I just couldn't find any record of him getting one, but. The bottom line is that he served his country with, you know, valor and distinction, regardless of when he went over and when he came back. And uh, I just thought that it was important to try to set the record straight as to where he was, as much as I could, as where he was and what he was doing when he was there. And it's funny because my dad was in World War II and he never talked about it. And those guys, they never talked about it. Uh, what they did over there mm -hmm. there's you know they just saw too much and it was just too they didn't want to go back there and, and something you can't blame them mm -hmm. so uh whatever lloyd mangrum did over there was was honorable and he you know he he was uh, he went over there as a private or private he came home as a corporal and uh he served for two years in overseas and i know that He's to be commended for that. I just, I, I just, I think that there was a, at the time when we wanted to, you know, make these guys maybe bigger than they were, or give them things that they didn't have. Uh, uh, maybe this was one of those cases, but uh, I just couldn't find any evidence that he was at the Battle of the Bulge. But he mm -hmm. was in in a hospital in England, recuperating mm -hmm. from a jeep accident. Yeah, and like you said, you know, he was overseas. He was in a hospital in England. 
And a lot of guys who, not taking anything away from them, but a lot of our hero sportsmen served time, but they never went overseas. They were in camps training people and, you know, sometimes it was a name only. You know, Ted Williams obviously flew battle, you know, in battles and all that, and Mangrum was overseas, and who knows what else he might have done. What I want to ask you, though, is do you know how serious any of those injuries he sustained were, and how was he able to stay in golf shape during this time? Right. Well, I think the most serious injury he, that occurred to him was was the Jeep accident, which was in August of 44 and uh he broke his uh his upper bone in his arm and his shoulder blade i believe um and at the time the doctors were really i mean this kind of harkens back to the hogan accident you know you're never going to walk again you're never going to do this again you're never going to do that again and they told him that he'd be very very lucky if he'd ever could swing a golf club again just because mm. of the damage, that the damage was done to his arm so that was the that was the worst thing that happened to him from an injury standpoint i mean he got nicked a couple of times with bullets um if you know if if what he says is true and i have no reason to doubt him um but the the real serious injury was from the was from the jeep accident and that was you know a, friendly fire if you will i mean it, it was he was driving a jeep with another guy uh, in the army and they just had the accident so um but he was able to um he, re- he recuperated enough in in london in um england to you know he played golf three or four times while he was over there and he said that the, when, the day that he knew he could raise his arm and swing a golf club was one of the happiest days of his life hmm. because he, you know, he, he, he fully intended to go back to the tour and play on the tour. And, um, if he couldn't have done that, I don't know what would have happened to him, but, hmm. uh, hmm. he was able to, you know, that was, he was able to get his golf swing back and he played in a couple tournaments in Europe before he came back to the tour and won a couple of them against, you know, not really great competition. And then he, bounced back into the tour in 46. Um, and that's one of the most amazing stories is he wins the U.S. Open that year. And, yeah, uh, yeah, he comes back <laughs> and, he, and he wins the U.S. Open in 1946. I mean, this is crazy. Right. It's the yeah. only U.S. Open victory he had. Um, played at Canterbury just outside of Cleveland. It was also... If I remember correctly, the first U.S. Open played since the tournament went on hiatus after the 1941 Open because of World War One, And we'll get more into that uh, the next time you're on Sports Forgotten Heroes. But this U.S. Open was spectacular. He was five back after the first round. Right. Shot a two under 70 in the second round to get himself into contention. Four under in the third round to move within one shot of the leader, Byron Nelson. Then he shoots an even par 72 in the final round to tie Nelson and Vic Gezzi atop the leaderboard. So a playoff ensued. And for those that don't remember, When you had a playoff in the U.S. Open back then, you played 18 holes. It wasn't sudden death. And 
Whoever had the best round after 18 was the winner. But guess what? It didn't settle anything. No. They had to play a second 18-hole playoff. What can right. talk about it? What can you tell us about it? Well, it. I mean, it. He was not obviously considered to be, you know, among the favorites. It was Nelson, Hohim, the usual suspects back then. Um, the thing that you know, in writing this, is, is that. There was a, it was a three-way playoff, but it could have easily been a five-way playoff um, because Hogan three-putted from about 20 feet on the 72nd hole, missed a short putt coming, which would have put him in the playoff. And Herman Barron was in contention until the 72nd hole, and he couldn't get in either. But So they had a three-man playoff, and, um, and, man, and it ended uh, – they all shot the same, I believe it was 72 the first morning. Yep, 72 all in the first morning. round. Right, they out, they went out in the morning because the USGA figured with three guys, it's probably we're probably not going to get a winner after 18 holes, so we better like have another 18 available in the afternoon if we need it, and guess what, they needed it. Hmm. And they finished in like conditions that today we wouldn't, they wouldn't play in. It was raining hard. It was lightning, mm. uh, windy, um, and uh, dark. You know, cars were parked alongside greens with their headlights on, so they could see. It was it was a bizarre, bizarre uh, setting. And Mangrum just in the last four or five holes just blew past both of them because well, he was sort of out of it at that point. It was both it was the two of them, Nelson and Mangrum. And Nelson, uh, Mangrum just kind of uh, took over the tournament in the last four or five holes uh, under these like ridiculous conditions and made a seven foot putt, I think on the 70, on the second 18 there, the 36 hole to win the tournament. Yeah. He was, he was, he was two down he was behind. Uh, uh, the way I see it, I got a, a scorecard here in front of me. So after nine holes, Nelson and Gezi were each at uh, two under, and Mangrum was it even. And then right. after 16, it had all switched. Mangrum was two under, and those two were at even, and he outlasted them. Wow. Right. Yeah. And I think I remember it was, I think it was Harvey Ward who said, um, that that was one of the most courageous things he's ever seen in golf was Mangrum on that last hole making the putt. He just stepped up to it, and, you know, rammed it home and rammed it home as as he was wont to do because he was a good putter. But he just said it was just unbelievable courage he, that the guy showed. And um, you know, just think about it—the fact that he had just rejoined the tour, I think, in February of that year, so you know, four months earlier. Um, and to, to win it, I mean, in, and he was really among professional golfers. I mean, there, there were some that served, you know, Hogan didn't obviously go overseas, neither did Demerit. Mm -hmm. uh, and very few went overseas and saw combat. And he did. Right. And for, and for him to come back and win the very first U.S. Open after World War II was really amazing. You know, it's just, it, that's something that you, you know, you could write a movie about right now, mm -hmm, and, and, mm -hmm. you know, on the Hallmark channel. Sure. Sure. <laughs> show it, show it every June. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that open 
1946 U.S. Open Championship had to be the crowning moment of his career. I mean, the uh, 1950, he lost in, in the U.S. Open to uh, Ben in the playoff at Marion. Uh, right. Lost twice in the semifinals of the PGA when it was a match play event. Uh, like you said earlier, he won the Varden Trophy twice, which is for the leading score on tour. He definitely won his share of tournaments, 36. So how does a guy who wins 36 PGA events get overlooked as much as Lloyd does? And maybe how much do the names Hogan, Nelson, and Sneed factor into that? Oh, oh, oh my God, you just answered my question. Exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. Look, look who was look who was in the you know he was playing against in those in, in that time, and I think that's that's why um, you know he was up against you know three of the icons you know of you know twentieth century golf, and um, he held his own against them. I don't think there's any question about that, but for whatever reason, when you think of you know the great golfers of the forties, those are the three guys that you think of. And maybe, you know, early 50s as well. Hogan, for sure. Um, you know, Nelson retired. I think Nelson retired after that 46 Open playoff. He, he, he just moved to Texas and said, the hell with it. I'm, you know, I'm going to get my ranch and I'm going to, you know, enjoy my mm -hmm. time on the ranch. Mm -hmm. And they did come back and play, you know, periodically. But he effectively retired after that U.S. Open. And, I don't, and not a lot of people knew that was going to happen. Um, but I think that's why. He tends to get overlooked. I don't, I'm trying to think of a modern day, you know, version of him. And I, you know, I mean, I'm thinking like maybe Ernie Els or somebody like that. Um, it's so funny you say that. You know what name comes to mind for me when trying to compare that is Tom Kite. Tom Kite. Okay. Yeah. He won, a, he won one open, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. And he was the all time leading money winner for a while. Yeah, but but we all know about Tom Kite, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a product probably of you know the you know the, the increased media attention and stuff. Now, I don't, I you know, I don't, I don't have the answer to it. I wish it. it it's just it. It struck me as very, very weird that this guy could kind of, you know, escape the you know all the things that he he should have had you know, going forward and and. That's why he did that column with Jim Murray, because he said, you know, I people need to know who I was and what I did. Um, and, and then he died before the column came out. Yeah, so, it's crazy. It's crazy, Peter. It's, when you think about it, at the time of his death, if, if, if what I read is correct, only 12 golfers in the history of golf and and Lloyd had passed away and. 1973, I think it was. Right. Only 12 golfers who ever played at, up to that point had won more tournaments than him. And like we said before, guys that were currently on the tour in the 1990s had never heard of him. I just yeah. can't wrap my, 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 my head around this. Why was his career... Gosh, I hate to use this. So underwhelming in the annals of golf history. Right. I wish, you know, I wish I had an answer for that. I just think part of it was because 
of who of, of we did, what we just talked about of who were there were the three larger than life you know they were you know nicholas woods and palmer you know of their age and, and those were the three guys that you know kind of drew all the attention i think a lot i think some of it has to go back to the fact that he was not a self-promoter and that he didn't really have any interest in promoting himself he just was you know for him it was well you know how much money did i make this week and what what does that do how does that you know look that sort of thing i think that that's what was important to him supporting his family and supporting himself um and he didn't I mean, he didn't care about the fact that he won a U.S. Open. I mean, he was happy to win the U.S. Open, and it led to a job at Tama Shanter where he got a lot of money. But it wasn't, in his mind, his most important win because it wasn't the one that got him the most money. Mm. He, mm. he was just, a, he was just a, a, a different dude. I mean, I just think he, he, he looked at things, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to say Machiavellian, but he, he, he really, it was really, and, and it means to an end for him in terms of what can I do uh, in terms of how much money can I make this mm. week and what's the best way to do that and, mm-hmm. and not, and not, you know, be, uh, you know, I'm not going to go talk to the press. I'm not going to be, a, you know, I'm not going to be like Jimmy DeMerit or mm. Sam Steen or any of those guys. I'm just, you know, I'm doing, I'm going to play cards afterwards with my friends and I'm going to go home to my wife. And that's what he did. Um, so he was, he, you know, if he'd been a better self-promoter, and I think that was, you know, at the base of his request for the Murray column, as he realized, I got to self-promote myself because no one else is going to do it for me. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to die in obscurity if, if, you know, they don't realize who I was. And it's, it's kind of sad in a way because he never should have had the column never should have had to have been written. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but it, 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 I'm glad it was because it, it did, you know, refocus our attention on, on a really, really great player. And as Murray wrote, you know, you know yeah, there was Hogan and there was Steve and there was Nelson, but there was also Mangra, you know, mm-hmm. he was, and, you know, in the late forties, he was as good as, and won as much as any of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he finally got his due in 1998 when he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. You know, right. he played in four Ryder Cups and, you know, including 53 when he was a playing captain. How how would you define when you look back at his career? How would you define his career? I mean, I think he had a terrific career. I, I mean, I think the Tom Kite analogy is, who's also in the Hall of Fame, by the way, I think that's a that's a very apt analogy. Here's a guy, a great player. Uh, he won one major, um, and so did Mangrum. Um, Tom Kite was, I don't remember Tom Kite being all that, you know, outgoing. Maybe he was, I don't know. I mean, I don't, he, he, he Nobody was nobody today. I don't think has the kind of the acerbic kind of like you know get off my lawn uh, mentality that Mangrum had. Uh, you know, it just a, it just doesn't pay to be that way. Um, and these guys now they have to be you know media training has got to be part of the deal with them now. You know, you got to know how to deal with the writers and the broadcasters and the sponsors and all that stuff. These guys they didn't. They didn't have to deal with any of that. They just went out and played. Mm-hmm. And I, I told this story when I was 
talking about the book, the various book talks that I gave. And I, I remember watching a tournament, uh, a pre-tournament. I think it was, I don't know what tournament it was, but John Rahm was walking down the fairway. It was, you know, it was a practice round. And so he's had shorts on and he was, and there were like five guys around him. You know, there was his, his caddy and his swing coach and his, I don't know, you know, his mental coach or whatever. And you just think like <laughs> Ben Hogan, like uh. yes, walking down the fairway in a practice round, it would be Ben Hogan and his caddy. And would his caddy have the yardage book and tell him what to hit? No. Ben Hogan <laughs> would say, give me, give me the six iron. That's what I need to hit. I mean, it was just, it was so different. And I think, you know, that was, that's part of it too, is that there wasn't a lot of, you know, media attention back then. And the guys who got the media attention were the, you know, the Hogan's and the Sneeds and the, and the Nelson's demerits to a certain extent. And, and Mangum just kind of fell through the cracks because he allowed himself to do that. But um, nonetheless, that as writers or as, you know, people who talk about history, like yourself and myself, we need to like make sure that whatever reason that happened, it needs to be, you know, changed and people need to recognize how good this guy was. And the Hall of Fame, I'm so glad he got into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's so deserving of it. And um, it took a while, I mean, 1998, but I mean, I'm, I'm glad he got in and he deserves to be in there. 36 wins. That's mm -hmm. a lot of wins. Mm -hmm. Well, like you said earlier, and like I've been preaching for the last couple of years, that's why I do my podcast. All right, let's wrap up with this. A sneak peek at an upcoming episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes with you, the 1942 <laughs> Hail America Open. What was it, and why is it so controversial? Okay. Um, in 25 words or less, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a wartime substitute for the U.S. Open. Uh, the USGA canceled all its tournaments uh, a month after Pearl Harbor. And, but they agreed to hold this tournament in Chicago in 1942, the same weekend as the U.S. Open. Uh, the USGA was one of three sponsors of this tournament. And they called it the Hail America because uh, Hail was not somebody's name. It was Hail as in Hale and Hardy because they were, mm. they were uh, emphasizing exercise and getting out and playing golf was good and you know, that sort of stuff. They wanted, they wanted people to stay in shape. So that was why it was called the Hail America National Open. And um, the reason it has some sort of uh, controversy continuing is that because it was run pretty much like the U.S. Open, there was two rounds of qualifying, as there are today in the U.S. Open. Uh, there was, uh, the USJ was on site to um, administer its rules and, uh, ruled that one player's clubs had improper grooves and he had to borrow a member's clubs uh, to play in the tournament. And um, when the winner was awarded the, uh, I guess it's like a medal. The medal, uh, yeah, it's a medal. Yeah, and, it, and uh, it looked a lot like the medals that they used to award to the real winners. So Ben Hogan 
to this day, uh, even though he's been dead for a while, but he would argue that he thought that that should have counted as a U.S. Open because of all the reasons I just said. There are a lot of people who think otherwise, including the USGA, which is the only voice that matters because they're not going to change their mind. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was worth like investigating it and throwing it out there and saying, look, this is what Hope Hogan has thought it should have counted. And if he thought it should have counted, I think that, you know, bears some weight. Absolutely. Uh, and he has a lot of people who believe that it, it should have counted as well. Um, so that's that's the um, that's the controversy that I referred to in the book is that uh, Hogan won it and it, it, he thought it should have counted. And the USGA says no. And I just went over the reasons why the USGA says no and tried to, you know, rebuke them as best mm-hmm. I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I think, you know, you could make a case for it. It's not going to happen. It, you know, they're mm-hmm. never going to, you know, the USJ isn't going to change its mind. And there are a lot of people who, who are not affiliated with the USGA who think that it's, you know, that it's crazy that it was at a US Open. But there are people like Dan Jenkins and Ron Syrak, or, you know, great golf writers who mm-hmm. think it should have done it. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's a great, you know, water cooler type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that, um, the thing that was was most uh, eye opening to me was that I had never heard of this tournament when I started uh, the book. I just I stumbled on it. I didn't know that there was. I had no idea that this tournament existed. Mm. And a lot of people who I considered to be you know pretty golf knowledgeable uh, friends of mine. I mentioned this to them. They hadn't heard of it either. Mm. So I thought, well, then if, if I haven't heard of it, then they haven't heard of it. And maybe a lot of people don't know about this tournament. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book. Well, it is a fun book to read, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation about it. And I want to thank you again for joining me today on Sports Forgotten Heroes, a talk about Lloyd Mangrum. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, Warren. I was happy to come on and, and to promote a guy who really, you know, should have been recognized for what he did earlier and, you know, more often, but it is what it is, I guess. He's a great player. (laughs) No doubt. Hey, thanks again, Peter. Okay. Thank you. Sometimes I find it really interesting that there are stars who play in sports today who don't know anything about the stars who played the game from yesteryear. I'm not talking about no-name stars, rather Hall of Fame caliber players, pioneers who paved the way for the people who play the game today. Lloyd Mangrum was one of those pioneers. 36 wins, a U.S. Open, Varden Trophy winner twice, leading money winner, and a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. To not be known... Well, frankly, it's head-scratching. I'd like to thank my guest today, Peter May, for taking the time to spend with us and to talk about Lloyd Mangrum. And, of course, I'd like to thank the good people at Roman and Littlefield for sending me a copy of Peter's terrific book, The Open Question. Thanks again to all of you for joining me, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.